Amen. Thanks, Josh. Good morning. I'm Jeff, one of the pastors here at GCFL. It's good to see you here this morning. And again, if you are worshiping with us, maybe for the first time, we're especially uh, glad that you are here. Trust that the Lord will really minister to your heart and that you will sense the nearness and the presence uh, of God this morning. GCF exists to glorify God. We do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. Uh, that really explains, that guides what we do and why we do it. And uh, even this last week, I was thinking about that. There are several, several things I could highlight, but let me just highlight a couple. We had ladies' night here this past Tuesday night. I know many of you ladies were there. Thanks for coming to that. Special thank you to those ladies who really helped to put that on. It's no easy thing to uh, have a bunch of ladies. I think we had almost close to 90 ladies here with a whole lot of soup as well. And so I actually learned something. I know the fellowship was very sweet and the soup was really good. So that's really wonderful. But uh, if you checked out the email newsletter, you saw this. It, it's actually possible. You can, muffin tins can be used for more than just muffins. Did you know that? So you can have a muffin tin. And you know how you got those 12 spots? And on a soup night, you can carry that around and fill it with soup. And I just think that's genius. And so I began to think about how, what other, what other application is there? This Thanksgiving, I'm going to show up with two muffin tins. And I'm just going to see what happens next. I think it's just genius, whoever thought of that. This past Friday and Saturday, we had a new members class here uh, at GCF Valley, which was such a sweet, sweet time. Several of you were there. And as I said to you folks, this was uh, the very first official uh, as we're independent now, very first official new members class at GCF Valley. And uh, so those of you who were there, obviously your reward is in heaven. There's something special there. Uh, but it was just a sweet, sweet time where we rejoiced in the Lord's grace and kindness to us. Jesus is building his church. And uh, we're really grateful for that. And we see that happening in a, in a lot of different ways. I had the privilege this morning of uh, turning to God's word, if you would, Mark chapter 14, as we continue here in our series. In the Gospel of Mark, I think we've got maybe five sermons left here. Mark chapter 14, I'll be reading verses 32 through 52. This is uh, Reformation Sunday, 526 years ago. Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis in the door at Wittenberg and recovered, really, the Gospel. And so even the things that I just mentioned, ladies' night, new members' class, that would make no sense at all if, if, the if we don't understand the Gospel. Uh, but it, it makes all the sense in the world when we actually do understand the good news of the gospel. In fact, uh, that's why we're here this morning. We want to continue to learn and grow in our knowledge and understanding. So if you're able to, please stand as I read Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated and join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, we come to you, and I certainly come to you at the beginning of this sermon, not because this is what I'm supposed to do or this is what's just supposed to happen here or simply out of duty, but because we all need your help. I need your help. My brothers and sisters here need your help. So Father, give us good and glad hearts to hear and receive your word this morning so that we might obey and be blessed. We confess, Lord, there are all manner of distractions we may be thinking about this afternoon, a meeting this week, hard situation to navigate, whatever it may be. But yet we know, Lord, the greatest distraction is not external, it's always internal. It's in our hearts. So be merciful to us, I pray. Be merciful with our distracted hearts and give us your grace to really pay attention to hear not the word of some guy, but to hear your holy word. And so th to that end, Lord, I pray that in your kind grace that your people here would hear a far better sermon than the one that I'm about to preach. Be pleased to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a number of difficult things about being a Christian there are certain theological truths that are really hard to sometimes wrestle with and grapple with. For instance, the Trinity. How is it that God is one God, yet existing in three co-equal and co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or maybe, how is it exactly that Jesus is fully human and yet he is also fully divine? Or you might think about the law and gospel. Yes, we are saved by God's grace, amen. But yet, we still need to obey. These are hard questions. I think one of the hardest questions for us to wrestle with involves suffering, personal suffering. 
Intellectually, it's the problem of evil. But much more personally, at the affective level, emotionally, it usually involves a one-word prayer. Why? Why, Lord? We see this all over the Psalms. Why is this happening to me, Lord? Why didn't you stop this, Lord? Why can't you stop this, Lord? Why does it seem like maybe you're not even listening to me? In the midst of that kind of personal suffering, many Christians will say that it was actually prayer that really got them through, that God gave me strength when I didn't have any. And amen and amen, praise God. I often hear that regularly. It meant so much to have people praying for me, to have godly people praying and other people pray. Yet sometimes, in the midst of our pain, sometimes it seems like our prayers can even make it worse. Because you pray and pray and pray, and you gather other people to pray, and you tell your home group to pray, and a lot of godly people pray, and you don't get any better. Or the cancer spreads. Or your dream job never materializes. Or you're still single. Or the depression deepens, or the relationship actually comes to an end. The suffering remains, and you wonder, why, why bother praying at all? And after all, it's not like you were praying for a three-month Caribbean vacation or, or a new car or a bigger house. Why wouldn't the Lord answer you in your sufferings? Praying those sorts of prayers in the midst of real pain or personal suffering can either turn us into cynics who reject God or disciples who are learning to submit. I don't know about you, but I think maybe the most difficult prayer for people like us to pray, the most difficult prayer for Christians to pray, especially when we are suffering, is in fact the prayer that Jesus prays here in Mark chapter 14. Father, not what I will, but what you will. I mean, is there a more difficult prayer to pray than that? Is there a gutsier prayer to pray, especially when you are suffering? Then, Lord, not my will, not my will, but only yours be done. This is the prayer that we have here from King Jesus in Mark chapter 14. And it is a prayer prayed, as we just read, in pain. And in suffering, Jesus is in the last 24 hours of his earthly life. Brothers and sisters, this 24-hour period changed literally the world. The world is different because of this 24-hour period. And so Jesus and his disciples have now journeyed to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just across outside the city of Jerusalem. It's in the, across from the Kidron Valley. The Garden of Gethsemane is holy ground. To be sure. That's why one theologian said that really the only approach to understanding what's going on here in the garden is hushed worship. Hushed worship. There really is only one way to really understand what's going on here in the garden with a holy reverence and a deep humility. And so we're going to need both of those things as we come to grips here with what in fact is going on, what we read here in the garden. So I do want us to understand this very gutsy prayer that Jesus prays here. I want us to see the depth of his 
emotion. And to do that, we have to deal with what's right in front of us here, what really Mark puts on display. And what he highlights for us here is the absolute, total, all-encompassing agony of Jesus. The agony of Jesus. He has all kinds of reasons for his agony. His agony is unique. It's unlike any other. And Mark gives us the details here and rounds out the picture here of the the depth of his agony here in the garden. And that's what we want to look at this morning. There's really two main reasons for his agony. First, Jesus is completely abandoned by his friends. He gives some very simple instructions to the disciples. Verse 32, Jesus says, sit here while I pray. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? Let's just let's keep it simple. Now, the other eight disciples, not including Judas, of course, they stay there leaving Peter, James, and John to accompany Jesus further into the garden. And we're not surprised that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him. After all, this is, this is really his inner circle of guys. These guys have been with him for some very monumental moments here, times of crucial importance. You think of the transfiguration for example. So this garden scene would prove to be another one of those vitally important moments. So I want to come back here, and we will come back to to the prayer of Jesus. But for now, I just simply want you to see the depth of his agony. Verse 34. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. What's interesting is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they describe this, as they record this, they they use slightly different phrases, slightly different words, all describing the agony, the sorrow, the grief of Jesus at this time. And I think what they're doing is they're, they're trying to describe what is almost indescribable. They're just grabbing at whatever words and phrases they can use to try and help us understand the immensity, the intensity of what Jesus is actually going through in this moment. And so the word translated very sorrowful here in verse 34, that's actually an intensification of uh, the, the, the greatly distressed and troubled that we read in verse 33. Literally it means to be encircled with sorrow or overwhelmed with grief. Jesus is heavy with pain engulfed in sadness, we might say. It's that impending feeling of, of doom, that, that you may be crushed. And so that, again, that phrase, very sorrowful, it's, it's the same sense we get if you read the Psalms, Psalm 42 and 43, when the psalmist says, my soul is cast down within me. Except Jesus goes even further. He's experiencing a sorrow here unto death itself. So Jesus here is not saying, I would rather die than feel this way. No, he's saying it feels as if I am dying. Because in the garden, he is experiencing a kind of grief that is absolutely terrifying for any human being. His sorrow, his anguish is so great that it actually does threaten to do him in. Now perhaps in some way, Some of you can relate to that. There's been periods of your life you have prayed some very difficult prayers in a time of deep, deep anguish and sorrow and suffering. If you haven't, think of 
Think of what probably would have to be the worst day of your life, the hardest moments of your life, that dark period of anguish and distress and sorrow where you, you could barely breathe, probably couldn't move, probably couldn't even speak. And then multiply that by an infinite number, and now you are only approaching the agony of Jesus here in this moment in the garden. Now, again, the initial reason for his agony is because his closest friends have abandoned him in his hour of greatest human need. And so this agony from Jesus, it's deeply personal. It's deeply human. Jesus prays arguably the most difficult prayer in the world to pray, Lord, not what I will, but what you will. And his disciples have abandoned him, verse 37 and 38. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to them, Simon, are, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus goes and prays. He comes back and he finds all of his disciples sleeping. And of course, Peter says, Lord, good reminder. Thank you. Totally get it. I'll get those other guys on. We got your back, Lord. You can count on us. Can Jesus really count on his disciples? Because as we read this, the same thing happens, doesn't it? Two more times for a total of three. Jesus retreats, goes to a quiet place up the mountain to pray. He comes back down ready to engage with his disciples, inviting them to, to carry the, the load, to, to share the burden. And each time he comes back, he finds them asleep. In the history of the world, could there be a worse time to fall asleep? Now, we could probably spitball a little bit here and think, okay, let me, there, I can think of a couple instances where it would be really bad to fall asleep. Driving a car. Eating. On a date. That'd be bad. And during a final exam. In church. All bad times to fall asleep. But the disciples picked an absolutely horrible time to fall asleep on Jesus. Here is Jesus in deep agony, his hour of greatest need, really asking for help, and they failed him. Three times, in fact, Jesus says, watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray, and all three times they fail. Hopefully, when we are called on to, to be with people in their time of trouble or need or some bit of personal suffering, hopefully, we will be better friends than these disciples prove to be. They actually prove themselves to be very poor companions of Jesus. Spirit may have been willing, but oh, the flesh is so very weak. Now in the disciples' weakness, I actually find some bit of encouragement and hope. Because I read that and I think, you know what, so often that's me. I'm weak, and so are you. So often we fail at some of the simplest tasks that maybe the Lord calls us to. And so the encouragement here is that Jesus knows that. He knows that we as, as his disciples are prone to weakness. And sometimes we do fail him and others far too often. He knows that our spirit is willing, but yes, our flesh is weak. And so we take great comfort then 
from the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, 15. Let this land on your soul, brothers and sisters, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, in every way, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now that doesn't mean that we will fully understand everything that Jesus went through as a human being. You know what it means? It means that Jesus understands everything that you go through as a human being. And he can sympathize with you. That means he doesn't look at you in your pain or in your suffering and say, come on, pull it together. Snap out of it. Move on with it. Stop being so human, would you? No, in our weakness, he gives us sufficient grace to endure. I, I think about this in the context of, of us, our life together here as, as a local church. I mentioned this to uh, in our new members class. Oftentimes, if we hang around each other long enough and, you know, we're going to home group and Sunday, we have multiple opportunities to kind of rub off on each other. And we do that in many positive ways. But sometimes we do that in not so positive ways. Sometimes it can be in really selfish and sinful ways, or sometimes we're just weak. Like, stick around this place long enough, and other people will start to see your weaknesses. And you're going to see other people's weaknesses. So if another brother or sister has ever disappointed you or let you down or failed to honor their word or their commitment to you, welcome to the church. Welcome to authentic Christian community. Jesus gets it. He knows exactly what you're going through. And when you then disappoint somebody else, when you, in your weakness perhaps, don't honor your commitments to another person, well, you are pretty much as authentic as you can be. That's called being in relationship with other people. Sometimes we are the ones who sting others by our weak-willed commitments, our lack of resolve, and at other times, we are the ones who feel the sting of disappointment because our friends or loved ones have said or done something that let them down. That's going to happen. So when that happens, because it will, you don't need to, you don't need to put that on Facebook and tell the whole world about your predicament. You don't have to send a tweet to the rest of the home group saying, I can't believe this person ignored me. I can't believe she didn't uh, agree with me. I can't believe this happened. Like, what did you expect? Really? Are we weak and needy sinners? We are. Every relationship this side of eternity, think of the most godly people or relationships that you know. Every relationship this side of eternity is less than ideal, precisely because we are weak and needy sinners. It's less than ideal, but it's not without hope. So in your disappointment, brothers and sisters, you got to understand your disappointment or disillusionment with other people, perhaps they're sitting in this room. That's going to lead you somewhere. You don't just remain in a position of neutrality. You turn in on yourself. Let your disappointments lead you to Jesus. Drive you to your Savior, to a deeper experience of his great love for you. Because Jesus knows exactly what it is to be disappointed and disillusioned and abandoned by his 
closest friends. And you'll notice here, it's not just his inner circle of disciples that abandons Jesus. Mark actually records here, again, the details of Judas' betrayal. This is verses 43 through 50. You can't really read these words without sensing, without feeling sadness. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know then that none of this was a surprise to Jesus. He was prepared for this betrayal. Jesus is not a passive victim. He he is fully aware of what is happening and what will happen to him, even as he feels the weight of the burden that he's about to bear. And it's horrific because Jesus isn't just betrayed. He's betrayed by one of his followers, someone he had chosen, a man who knew him well. So this is treachery of the highest order. And it all starts with a kiss, verses 45 and 46. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. What starts with a kiss leads to a sword, a cut, you got a bloody ear on the ground. And then in verse 50, in the original language, ends with five of the saddest words that I think we might ever read in our Bibles. And they all left him and fled. They all left him and fled. Jesus prays, his disciples sleep. Best friends desert him, they abandon him. Judas kisses him, betrays him, swords have been pulled, ears are cut off. It's a bloody mess. And all of this, a few verses earlier, remember, the disciples said, Lord, we'll follow you. We're not going to die. Even if we have to die with you, you can count on us. We'll be there for you. And all of them left Jesus and fled. Can you imagine any sadder words? I mean, Jesus gets abandonment. Like, well, like none of us ever will. But he gets you if you're sensing that or you feel that or there are points in your life when you are entirely alone. He gets you. Now, if those are some of the saddest words in the Bible, verses 51 and 52 are some of the strangest. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Thanks to Mark, here we have the first recorded streaker in human history. Now, you read a verse like this, and it should cause you to think, why is that in our Bible? What's going on? Why would Mark give us such strange details? Because if you really think about it, this is kind of an odd way for Christianity to take flight. We got a bunch of weak disciples who can't stay awake. We got a betrayer. We got a bloody ear. And a naked man running as fast as he can in the opposite direction. Now, many commentators actually think that that naked man fleeing is Mark, the guy that put this together. And I think actually there's great evidence for that. Now, we can't be absolutely conclusive, but, but here, here's what we can be certain of. Mark's point here is to show us the depth of Jesus' abandonment. Jesus stands entirely alone. Even an unnamed, anonymous sympathizer is running away from him. He would rather be stark naked running through the woods than to be seen with Jesus at this point in time. They all 
left him and fled. Absolute, total, complete abandonment. Now there's a second reason, and even more important reason for the agony of Jesus here in the garden. It's not just that he was abandoned, deserted by his closest friends. It is his agony of knowing that he will be forsaken by God, his heavenly Father. Jesus knows that temporarily he will be forsaken by his heavenly Father. Verses 35 and 36. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yours be done. Luke, Luke chapter 22 records it like this. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Never has a man prayed facing more temptation. Never has a man prayed facing more anguish and despair and suffering. Never has a man prayed with more emotion and inner sorrow, grief, than Jesus here in the garden. And the reason is because he knows exactly what is coming to him. He knows what lies ahead. He sees his future with absolute perfect clarity. I think some of us live our lives thinking, you know what, my life would be better. I would be less anxious. I'd be a lot happier if I could know the future. Really? I don't know of anything worse than knowing the future. Here's when I lose my job. Here's when I lose my mind. Here's when my spouse passes away. Here's when my children walk away. Here's when disaster occurs. Jesus is in agony precisely because he knows the future and he knows that there will be a point in time in just a matter of hours where God the Father will turn his back on him. And so Jesus prays. He has one desire, really, in this prayer. Verse 36, Father, Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. And the cup that Jesus is referring to, really from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, the cup is the cup of God's divine wrath that is poured out by God the Father against sinners. So this cup, it's not just, it's not just the physical suffering and death that Jesus faced here. But the cup is the accumulated wrong that you are responsible for and the Lord's wrath against all of your accumulated wrong. That's the cup. And so it was the knowledge that his death and only his death on the cross could atone for all of the sins of mankind and that, yes, indeed, God the Father would indeed lay on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. On the cross, brothers and sisters, Jesus drank your cup. All of your sins, past, present, and future. He drank all of mine as well. 
all of the sins, past, present, and future. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. In fact, as sin bearer, Jesus became the object of God the Father's wrath against us. Paul says this, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For, so for a time, Jesus Christ the Holy One, the sinless Lamb of God, would be forsaken by God the Father. He'd be cut off from him. He'd be separated from the perfect unity and delight that he had in him. So for a time, Christ would be regarded like us, as if he were vile sinners. On the cross, Christ would be regarded as a murderer, as a thief, as a fornicator, as an adulterer, as a liar, as a Pharisee, as a drunkard, as a rebel, a swindler. I mean, his perfect nature must have just been repulsed with such a close identification with sin. Jesus was forsaken for our sake. I mean, it's even, it's just really hard to imagine the horror that he felt as he contemplated our sins being placed on him and his heavenly father turning away from him. And so he prays this one prayer, this one sincere plea, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is basically saying, God, is there any other way? Can you find another way to save your people from their sins that doesn't involve me taking your wrath? And so here we have Jesus in sorrow and agony like we'll never know, asking God, his heavenly father, for one thing. God, would you do this one thing? When we, when we think about praying, I think there's probably two common mistakes that we make as we approach God in prayer. One is that we ask selfishly, impure motives, Second, we don't ask at all. And I think for, for many of us, it's probably on that second that, that, that that's, that's the tension. We, we don't really ask God at all. And as we read the Gospels, particularly here in Mark, we've seen this, brothers and sisters, the number one thing that Jesus teaches us about prayer is to ask, to go to him, come to me. Over and over again, we see that. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's going to his heavenly father and asking. So brothers and sisters, when you come to God in prayer, when you approach God in prayer, especially if you're in, a, you're in just great need, there's a time of suffering or pain. It's never a question of can he. It's a question of will he. So keep asking. Keep going to him. Ask and ask and ask and persevere in asking until the Lord actually grants your request or he tells you to stop praying. Keep asking. Now knowing what is ahead in this great agony, Jesus prays. Examining his prayer here in the garden is actually a sermon unto itself. Who am I kidding? It's probably three sermons. 
But since that's not possible this morning, I just want to give three brief, I'll say it. Let me back up here. What I'd like to do is give three brief observations about his prayer. And I'll let you tell me after if you think they were brief. First, his prayer is personal. His prayer is personal. Jesus knows the one to whom he is praying. Abba, Father. He prays to his heavenly Father. He's not praying to some unknown deity. He's not praying to some mystical force in the sky. Jesus knows his heavenly Father personally, deeply. That alone could change or radically alter your prayer life this week. How different do you think your prayers might be if this week you approached God like Jesus does here? as your heavenly Father who delights to hear your prayers, as your heavenly Father who knows your needs even before you pray about them, as your heavenly Father who loves to give good gifts to his children. It's kind of like the difference between my kids asking me for $20 to get some ice cream Or my kids asking a neighbor or a coach for $20 to buy ice cream. Well, what's the difference? Well, they know who I am. We have a personal relationship. They know I'm their dad. They they know I'm the guy that lives in the same house. They know I'm the guy that sits at the same table with them and laughs with them and is just hanging around all the time, opening up the kitchen, door, freezer. What are we going to have to eat? That's the guy. They're not wandering around the neighborhood like cold-calling neighbors, sending texts to random people saying, hey, can I borrow $20 for ice cream? They know that if they come to me, their dad, and if mom says yes, or if she's just not there, we're going to get ice cream because I love ice cream. Jesus' prayer is personal. Second, it's honest. It's honest. It's truthful. Jesus says all things are possible. Luke says it, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. Lord, is there another way? Is there another way? Church, it's not a sin to ask God to remove suffering or pain from your life. In fact, it's a sign of faith. If in your suffering or pain and despair, you go to him and you confess and you're honest before him saying, Lord, I, don't, I would love for you to remove this. This would, this would be great, but I don't, I don't really know what's best. So not my will, but yours be done. But I believe you can do anything, Lord, so I'm going to keep going to you and ask you. That's what Jesus is doing here. If it is possible. So it just, you, you see the, the honest wrestling taking place in his heart. Church, Jesus is not some religious stoic, and this is actually not a churchy prayer. This is a gut-wrenching, total, brutal, honest prayer prayed in deep agony. So you got to know that there's nothing unchristian about praying with a depth of emotion, likely tears, that you don't even, you can't even form words. Oftentimes when you are in some bit of pain or suffering, you think, I can't go to God now. No, that, that's the time you must go to God. When you feel sorrow unto death, you're in good company. Jesus felt that. When you sincerely and honestly plead with God, you are following in your Savior's footsteps. Where else are you going to go? 
Where else are people like us to go with the heaviness and the hardness of life and our weaknesses and our sins and other sins against us? Those are burdens that we simply are not meant to bear on our own. So we must go to our Heavenly Father. Third, prayer of Jesus here is humble. You understand Jesus loved his life. He loved his disciples. There's so many instances, and, and we, we see of some of them here, I think, in, in the Gospels, but where I think Jesus just loved being around those guys, loved teaching them, loved hearing how they're interacting with him, loved little children, on and on it goes. Jesus didn't have a death wish. He loved life more than any of us ever will, but he loved something even more than his life. He loved doing the will of God, his Father. And so when Jesus prays here, Father, not what I will, but what you will, he actually meant it. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. That is that is a humble prayer. But do you realize that Jesus Christ, the sinless lamb of God, he did not get what he prayed for. Now, yes, in one sense he did. The will of God was accomplished. It's the only way any of us would have any hope of salvation. But his immediate desire, Father, remove this cup from me. That was not granted. The cup was not removed. God said no to his own son. So if the holy son of God, sinless lamb, didn't get every one of his desires in prayer, why are you so surprised or disillusioned if you don't get exactly what you pray for when you want it in the way that you want it? Jesus is not picking on you. He loves you. But sometimes he, he does say no. He's going to withhold nothing good from you. But he can and does say no. Jesus asks, Father, is there another way? And God says no. Here's the way. And Jesus submits all the way to the cross. Not my will, but yours be done. That's why for my money, this is, this is the hardest prayer that people like us will pray. You know why? Because it means we have to give up. It means we have to give up the right to say, Lord, here, here's my will. I think this is a better will than your will. Here's what I want to have happen, Lord. Please make this happen, Lord. This is what I want in the present. Here's how I see the future going down. It means we have to give up that right to ourselves. Give up the right to somehow atone for the past, control the present, and be sovereign in the future. But you know what happens, brothers and sisters, when you begin to give up those sort of rights to yourself and to trying to figure out your life? you actually come to a very sweet place of surrender. You come to a sweet place of holy desperation where then you, your heart is actually open to trusting God 
trusting in his promises, trusting in his plan, trusting in his purposes. So that, yes, one day you can actually pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And you know what? You can actually mean it. The prayers church that honors God are these sorts of bold, humble prayers that always end with, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. So yes, bring your sufferings, bring your cares, bring your petitions, bring your pains, bring your plans, bring your sorrows, bring all of that before the Lord, but don't stop there. Because you can do all of that and still be firmly in control of your life and essentially all that you're doing is asking God to bless your very well-intentioned plan. I know that because I, I have done that. And I still have the, there, there's still that tension almost every time I pray. It's like, Lord, I, I do want your will, but do I want your will? Because I still feel like my will is pretty good. No. Brothers and sisters, unless your will is broken in prayer like Jesus here, you will still do your will. And so will I. And we will never be fully surrendered to God and we will never be as useful to God as we could be. Not what I will, but what yours be done. What a gutsy prayer for Jesus to pray here in the garden. I wonder... Could, could, you, could you see yourself? Could you hear yourself praying like that this week? I mean, could you envision those words kind of forming in your heart and then giving voice to that? Lord, not my will but yours be done. Lord, this is really hard because I really do like to be in control. I don't like to relinquish control. But here's my situation. Lord, yeah, would you do this? Here's what I think. Here's what I want you to do, Lord. Would you move in this way? But I'm not quite sure if that's what I want you to do. I confess, Lord, I don't know. So I surrender. I trust you. I know that you can do all things, Lord. So, Lord, not my will, but your will. Do that, Lord. Could you envision praying like that? I wonder what difference it would make in your life and with your family and in mine. I wonder if, if maybe a couple hundred of us here began to pray those really hard prayers, bold, humble, courageous prayers. I wonder what the Lord might want to do right here in our church. I wonder.